wanted to take a few minutes to remember that loss. That's a loss that many tens of thousands of people around our country today feel ever so keenly, and we don't want to skip over a day that gives us a chance to remember that. We remember, too, that um, I think it's important to discern what we're actually remembering and never forgetting, because I think it's easy to be caught up and never forget what our enemies did to us, never forget what those wicked people did. I think it's important to remember that wickedness has no depth that's ever been sounded. I think it shouldn't surprise us to see how depraved people are, because apart from the grace of God, we would be that depraved, right? So I think it's important as we think about it from a, from a Christian worldview, uh, we remember the suffering, we remember the horrible tragedy of the whole thing. And then we also remember Jesus' words, pray for those who use you, pray for your enemies and do good to them. And we leave the judging part to the Lord because he knows how to preserve those who have rejected Christ for future judgment. And the imprecatory psalms that deal with those who the Lord will deal with are his business, but he's given our business, which is to remember that the gospel is the great bridge. And we're going to talk about that today and its power and so we want to make sure that we spent some time remembering the right things and what uh, happened as a result of all of that. And then that's the kinds of things we need to remember to do. So let's pray as we get into the Word of God and we just kind of give our time to Him. Lord, we thank You today for opportunity to open Your Word and to look at the power of the Gospel presented correctly. We thank You for this passage of Scripture that deals with the change that occurs with the understanding of our own uh, wicked state and our depravity. Those kinds of things are important to remember, Father, and, and obviously as you, uh, your Holy Spirit carried Paul along to write, uh, he made it clear these things are to be remembered both for Timothy and for the church and at the church at large. And so I pray that we'll come away with the things you'd like us to understand. Thank you for this day of remembrance where we remember all those who are lost. And Father, I pray that uh, you'll bind up the wounds of those who suffer today and are, are uh, distraught. I pray that bring, you'll bring them to your grace, to your throne, where they might try and find true uh, encouragement and and blessedness. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue to study today, so I'd encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 15. It's good to be back together, and we're going we're gonna to dig in today. It's a continued study through 1, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We've entitled Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. Power of the Gospel. Trustworthiness is a hard attribute to find. In, in the early 1400s, the kings of Italy and Bohemia both promised safe transport and safe custody to the great pre-Reformation reformer John Huss. Both, however, broke their promises to him, leading to Huss's martyrdom in 1415. We can find these examples all through history, but later Thomas Wentworth, an advisor to King Charles I, had carried with him a document signed by Charles which read, Upon the word of a king you shall not suffer in life, honor, or fortune. Not long, however, before Wentworth's death warrant was signed by the same king, and he was arrested and put to death in 1641. And sometimes trustworthiness is found in an unlikely place. Dr. Clarence Bass, a retired professor of Bethel Theological Seminary, recounts a story. It's not unlike many who minister from their early years. From early in his ministry, he said he, he recalled preaching in a church in Los Angeles. He wasn't sure how it had been received as he stood at the door greeting people as they left the sanctuary. The remarks about his message seemed to be complimentary, that is, until a little old man came through and remarked, you preach too long. Well, Bass wasn't phased by the remark, especially in light of the many positive comments 
However, the little guy came through again, and he commented, you didn't preach loudly enough. And he remembered it seemed strange to him that he'd circle back around and made his way through the receiving line again. <clears throat> but when he came through a third time and exclaimed, you used too many big words, he knew it was time to try to figure out what was going on here. And so he turned to a greeter nearby and he asked him, you see that little man over there? Who is he? Don't pay any attention to him, the greeter replied. All he does is go around and repeat everything he hears. Of course, Dr. Bass probably was standing in the back thinking in a somewhat confused and embarrassed state that if the reputation of the little guy was true, those were the most trustworthy of evaluations that he would have received that day. First Timothy chapter 15, Paul deals with trustworthiness too. and He starts out in verse 15 and he says, I'll let you read there with me, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18, this command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in the regard to their faith. Verse 20, Sir Hyas and Alexander, whom I have handed to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Stop right there. As is our normal, we're going to work our way verse by verse through that section. It's a wonderful passage. It deals with the power of the gospel. In this section, really starting in verse 12, we get to see the Apostle Paul deliver his testimony, and we saw that he is really using himself as an example of the proper understanding and the teaching of the gospel, because up through verse 11, he's been talking about false teachers in the church and how they've messed all of that up, teaching whatever they want to teach, just kind of uh, randomly teaching the gospel, how they want to teach it, picking and choosing. And so, He teaches them by this example of himself. It's going to include the law taught correctly. That's the bad news. That's how the law is supposed to be used to make sure everybody knows where they stand. And then the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which can lead to repentant faith. And we worked our way through this section, and we've marked uh, marked the importance of correctly teaching the Word of God in presenting the gospel, and we marked that by what it produced in Paul's life. And that just is, I think, obvious. It's the reason why Paul has been carried along to record it here. So, if you look at verse 12, he starts this way. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is Paul starting with thankfulness. And of course, he's thanking the Lord for all the other things that are going to be listed in this passage. But it's the first thing a correctly presented and believed gospel produces is thankfulness. Paul's thankful for all the things that are going to come his way, but an overwhelming sense of gratefulness is there because he has seen God's ability to transform lives, particularly his. And so we understand Paul's first response, I thank Christ Jesus. It's a great starting. It's something we want to make sure we resonate, and we pointed that out as we looked at it. Next thing we saw that the gospel has the power to produce through the word taught correctly is found in Paul's observation of his own life. Look at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has, he says, strengthened me. That's enabling or empowering. Jesus gives salvation. He also has uh, the, the enables us and strengthens us, uh, those who are redeemed, to live that life out because we wouldn't be able to live that with any victory. 
to have strength to accomplish kingdom things. Paul lived his entire life this way in the strength that God lent to him. And thirdly, we saw the gospel has the power to produce faithfulness or trustworthiness. Look at verse 12. He says, he considered me faithful. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit we saw when the gospel is delivered correctly through the faithful teaching of the Word of God and repentant faith occurs. It produces faithfulness and it makes the Holy Spirit invisible and known. God can use you as a vessel of honor set apart from His work when you're faithful. And the more we're good stewards of that that the Lord has given us and entrusted us, the more useful we'll become. And then we saw the next principle stated, really, in, uh, according to sound teaching and the power of the gospel. Look there if you would. And that's number four. It's purpose or usefulness. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he's considered me faithful. Here it is, putting me into service. Salvation gave Paul his purpose for life and it gave you your purpose for life. Paul says he made me a minister, he made me a servant, he put me into lowly, humble service, and Jesus did the same for you and for me. And, and you can tell by that term that he's not bragging about himself. And we also saw, and when we noted this, that things God does through the power of the gospel are not some limited kinds of things. We don't compartmentalize our relationship to Christ and it doesn't overflow into everything that we do. Transformation goes way beyond the saving act really changes, uh, affects the whole of the Christian life and the whole of the Christian ministry. Everything that you do. In fact, John 17, 17, sanctify them, Jesus said, in the truth. Your word is truth. So the word is going to have to get in you clearly taught, clearly read and understood. And then verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. So you have usefulness, you have purpose. God desires to put you into service. Salvation is to impact everything you do in this world. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter reminds believers about part of their purpose that God has equipped them to perform. He says, each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So there's, there's speaking and serving in the power God gives. You have a purpose, speaking and serving, blessing each other, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. The things God does through the power of the gospel are not some limited kinds of things. They work their way into every facet of life. It impacts all that you do, how you interact with people, how you operate and do your job, uh, how you act at home. It's all part of the transforming power that God has brought to bear in your repentant faith. And someday, beloved, as you think about this passage right here, someday your record of obeying the Lord in these things will be all that matters to you. Someday. Someday you're going to stand before the Lord and they will be the things that brought God glory and you will be so glad that you did them and wished that you had done more. And they were the indicating factors that you were obedient. You saw what he said, you acted on what you understood, and they are the indicating factors that you belong to him. The word at work in you, making you a reprint of Christ. And so let that be the mark, uh, let that mark your life now. That that is really what you were made to do. And then verse 13 continues to, to mark the power of the gospel through the proper teaching of the word and its ability to uncover the heart of men. So you can see Paul's little change here. He talks about uh, the marvelous things that have happened, the usefulness and the purpose and, and all of that, and the strength that God provides. Then he gets to this point where we get some introspection, and I think this is a really good change. Even though he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, 
and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. So he understood himself well. There was some self-realization going on there. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And this is how Paul viewed his previous infractions. In verse 15 he says, I'm foremost of all. Of all the sinners that have ever come or or would be, I'm foremost. Present active indicative. I wasn't previously the worst sinner. I am still. And all these observations in Paul's testimony, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, first of the worst, if you will, of sinners, all led us to our fifth observation of the principle of the power of the gospel. And that number five is understanding or perspective. What do I mean by that? I just mean that it's the proper thinking about yourself. This is, this is the correct thinking of a healthy, regenerate heart. And the gospel, rightly presented, produce a Christianity that has no sense of superiority. You don't want to be the guy who's like the guy in the temple, the Pharisee who says, I'm glad I'm not like these other sinners. You want to be the guy that's beating his breast and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the idea. The correct understanding of human depravity. Paul knew what he'd been and what he was and what he continued to be in himself because of the gospel and the proper understanding of the word of God and then his repentant response to it. And this knowledge even increased in the years as he understood his heart even better than he did at the first. And we find that, don't we, as we go through the word of God and we come to faith, we understand our brokenness and in repentant faith come and receive Christ as our Savior. But the more we understand what the word of God says, the more we see how very vile we were and how often we fail him, right? It becomes very, very apparent. Only an immature believer thinks everything's always perfectly good between them and the Lord. It is perfectly good from an eternal perspective, but on a daily, on a daily fellowship basis, we want to walk in Spirit's control because we have the tendency then to act out on the things the flesh wants. So that is at the known true reality of authentic Christianity. That is the awareness, if you will, of a graced heart. That God acted on you in His good pleasure and gave you grace. And this is the wisdom that comes with sanctification, which is based on a looking of the, at the mirror of the Word of God. In fact, that's exactly what James says in James chapter 1, verse 22. James, by the way, is the book that we're studying with our college career and singles small group. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Many people hear, he says, but make sure you're a doer. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, Marcus, so sad, he immediately has forgotten what kind of person he was. So the word of God is given in part to make sure we understand what kind of person you really are. And that's pretty encouraging, isn't it? It's not just to make you feel good. You're not supposed to come to church. You just They made me feel really good about myself and I really had a good experience and now I'm walking out and I'm just, it's not always like that, is it? Not if the word's acting correctly and not if we're being a good steward of what we see. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So a repentance then that begins at the moment of conviction by the Holy Spirit who illuminates our infractions, that's the reason why we need the law, and the times we violated God's law and offended the God who made us, that understanding of our prior failings, our continued ones, can give rise to the best worship and the best service. See, to have a true understanding of our unworthiness before the Lord and that He is desirous to use us. In fact, Hebrews 12, 28, it's, it's a great springboard from what we've just been looking at. It says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, you realize that you have received at salvation a kingdom that will never be shaken, an eternal kingdom. 
All the other kingdoms have gone before, they'll come and they'll go. This one doesn't. You receive it. What's our response? Let us show what? Our very first response of receiving the kingdom is exactly Paul's first response as he talks about the power of the gospel. It's thankfulness. Let us be grateful. Show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. What's the springboard for acceptable service with reverence and awe? A proper understanding of our unworthiness to receive a kingdom it doesn't be sh- it's not shaken. And our thankfulness because he's given it to us. See? And that makes sense, doesn't it? Spurgeon noted, is noted as saying, quote, The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merits, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He goes on to say, he comes first to visit his people, not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities, not to re- reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins, end quote. That's, that's exactly it, see. A proper understanding of why Christ bridged the gap. And that leads to true worship. That's joy in our salvation, tempered with the reality of who we really are apart from Christ. That's the thinking, then, beloved, of a healthy, regenerate heart. And look at the last part of verse 13. He says, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And this statement really lets us see the sixth principle that we need to see in the power of the gospel, and that's pity or compassion. We understand very clearly what we've received from the Lord. The power of the true gospel, in other words, puts the mercy of God on display. Paul was responsible for his sin, and the wages of sin is death. And he wrote that to the church in Rome. But the remarkable part about mercy is, is when you own your sin, in other words, admitting that you were ignorant and unbelief, you receive it. On the Damascus Road, Saul did not deserve mercy, and no one who sins does. Paul was shown mercy, and mercy is aorist, passive, indicative. In other words, God met him in his sinful, miserable, self-righteous ignorance, pointed out the person he really was, and he repented, and God mercy, the idea is God mercied him. The passive, at some point in the past, the aorist, he was given mercy at the point of repentance. God mercied him. Paul's present life, ministry, were, a res- were as a result of mercy and grace. And that's how it works, beloved, for everyone. Everybody who responds to the true gospel because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And those who come to God then, in repentant faith, admitting their offense against the holy God, which is based in ignorance and unbelief, the gospel will produce a transformed life. See, that's how the gospel works. You might be thinking, well, that's not the gospel I heard, beloved. This is the gospel, the true gospel. I'm not sure what you heard. But you can respond to that true gospel right in the middle of this sermon. Okay? Now look at verse 14, if you would. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And that statement illustrated another principle of the power of the gospel presented in sound teaching, and that is abundant grace. We understand where we are, we understand what we continue to do, we understand the depravity of our own nature, and then we see this mercy and then grace presented so clearly. And we saw last time, you know, grace is God's blessing given to condemn sinners freely without any worthiness on their part, based on his own good pleasure and not on anything they have done or will do. That excludes any righteousness on your part or my part. God's blessing given to condemned sinners freely without any worthiness on their part based on his own good pleasure and not on anything they've done 
or will do. Every single thing then, if you understand grace and that understanding, every single thing, every gift, every blessing, every benefit is a result of grace, God's good pleasure to give it without any merit on our part. And when Paul says that, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, he just means mark it for Paul and for every repentant sinner as it relates to salvation, there is no conceivable accumulation of sin that grace cannot overflow. And we're going to see his, this reinforced here in just a minute with Paul's next statement. Grace increases the more we need it, and there's always more to follow. And God's grace is just beautiful. It not only outstrips our sin, uh, but along with it, the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Just shows more grace gifts of faith and love. And again, this is just a really great mirror, just like we just saw just a minute ago in James. You know, when you come to faith, the effect of the true gospel is an outcome. That's hearts previously filled with unbelief are now filled with faith. And hearts once filled with hatred are filled with love. See, those are works of the Holy Spirit in the fruit of the Spirit. And they become visible now. And every true believer sees these benefits to a greater or lesser extent. And they certainly should be ever increasing as we go older in the faith. Now, let's look at verse 15, if you would. It is, he says, and we get back to trustworthiness. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am, foremost of all. Now the words uh, trustworthy statement, that occurs five times uh, in the New Testament, and all of them are in the pastoral epistles. And so I'm just going to give you a little survey, because I think it's very, very important. We're going to talk about why he says it like this, and what impact that had on the early church. So we have it here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, and then we move to 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, and he says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So that's a trustworthy statement as well. And then 1 Timothy 4, 9. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And then he says it again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That, Paul says, is a trustworthy statement. And Titus, then, chapter 3, verse 8, is the last time we see this in, in, these, uh, in the New Testament, particularly in, in the pastoral epistles. He says, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who, here it is, have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Paul says, you know this is a trustworthy statement. If you believe God, be careful to engage in good deeds. Two times in Revelation, though, we see a similar expression. Uh, these words are faithful and true. Remember, uh, Jesus tells John, these things are faithful and true. Write these things down. And the difference between them, the two, is obvious. The first five in the pastoral epistles are repeating what has become commonly known and said. And then as you get to Revelation, you realize these last two are important words that Jesus wants to become well-known and said. Write these down. They're faithful and true. Previously not known, now known as you get to the book of Revelation. So these statements, as we see them in the pastoral epistles, we just see so clearly are really wonderful if you think about their, or, or their origination. And I, I took some time just really kind of dwelling on this this week as I was studying for uh, this message. These are expressions from the first century. They were all well-known and often repeated. In other words, they were an encouragement to the church. They're well-known and everybody knew them and said them. So you can see, it's a faithful 
statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that great? Well, I'm terrible. Yes. Yes, the world is terrible. Rome is terrible on the church. Yes, and Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 9-11, yes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, it's, it's a common expression. It's very clearly has its, has its root in the wickedness of the world. You see, I'd like, to be, I'd like to be an overseer. I want to leave the church. Yes, it's a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he decides to do. I'm glad you want to lead the church. We need more people leading the church. That's a fine work you want to do. Trustworthy statement. Man, I'm super discouraged. I, I don't need, I, it doesn't seem like I'm getting, you know, nothing's really happening like I really wanted to happen. You know what? It's for this we labor and strive. Yeah, ministry's hard. We have fixed our hope on the living God, and he's the Savior of, of all men, especially those who believe. Man, life's hard. Yes, it is. Ministry's hard. Yes. And, and we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the Lord. Not because we expect men to do something. Not because we want some kind of fruit. Not because of any of those things. We fixed our hope on the Lord who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. What's going on in the lives of these believers? Well, if you died with him, you'll live with him. If you've come to faith, you die, you die with Christ, right? You're raised with Christ. If you endure, you'll reign with him, right? That's the perseverance of believers. Stick with it. You know, obviously sticking with the salvation that began shows it was real. If we deny him, he also deny us. If you say you've never been born again, you were not. Because somebody who's born again... Won't say I've never been born again, right? If you're faithless, he remains faithful. On the days that you're having the hardest time, if you're truly his, who's going to know you're born again? The one who really, where it really matters. The Lord's going to know that. That's a faithful saying, a trustworthy statement. Trustworthy statement. I'm not sure, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, why are you doing that kind of thing? You know, those who believe God will have to be careful to engage in good deeds. If you believe in God, you're supposed to be doing good deeds, see? So you can see this kind of echoing around the first century. And I just love thinking about that. And Paul indicates, you know, and it's really similar to what we do, and, and we know that this was a first century repeat too. Resurrection morning. He's risen. What's the rest? He's risen indeed. Right? That was a first century saying. Very common. Right? Everybody knew what you were talking about. The hope now is fixed. Christ conquered death. He's risen. He's risen indeed. So Paul's language really indicates that he's reminding them of something that the fellowships of believers everywhere the church had spread knew and they rehearsed these to one another. And I love that. And, and there's something lost in that simplicity, I think, because we can't respond so quickly in that way. And in verse 15, it's just so cool as we get back to that particular trustworthy statement. It's the whole gospel in a sentence. And it can be rested on with confidence and received with, with every affection and every gratitude. It doesn't minimize it at all. And, and there was no doubt rehearsed in the local churches until they became known watchwords, if you will. Responses. And the whole statement is this. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that statement shows more of the power of the gospel and its purpose at work through faithful teaching market, it just shows the true disposition of God toward men. Isn't that great? If you're, if you're unsure what God was really thinking about and what he thinks about constantly as he thinks about men, this kind of reinforces that for you, right? And what a relief that brings. It displays the benevolent aspect of God's character to full effect, especially in his ability... And his concern 
for those who are lost than through Jesus to affect that condition. Not just, well, they're sinners and that's just really sad because, um, you know, I wanted better for them. But not only that he's concerned that those people on earth are lost, but that he has the ability to affect that condition and destiny. And it echoes the angel and his words in Joseph. And I, I just love looking at this. Matthew one twenty one, as um, the angel is talking to Joseph, he says, um, he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. What's the rest? Yeah. Isn't that cool? That's the very first words that anybody got to hear about the Messiah coming. He's going to save his people from his sins. And this is Jesus' words after the salvation of Zacchaeus, which is just a marvelous story. Salvation has come to this house. And then he says this in 19 verse 10. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. He had a purpose in life, didn't he? He came to seek and save and redeem the lost. And this creed for Paul then, really deserving full acceptance, literally worthy of the reward due. That's what it means. It's worthy of the reward due. It's so majestic, so wonderful, it's worthy of the reward due. And, and I think, um, and I was thinking about this earlier, I think our experience in condensing something down, we realize that's a difficult art, right? I mean... You guys all have uh, specialties. If, if somebody said, take, take what you do and put it in a four-page booklet, that's tough, right? I mean, in our experience, there are a few subjects drier and more unsatisfactory than small books on really great subjects. You're like, yeah, but what about, and you know, there's plenty of questions that are going to pop up because we try to condense it too much. Abbreviated statements of large systems are not fun to read, and Inaccuracy lurks there and, and summaries, and, and there's this whole, though, opposed to our experience, there's this whole fullness of God's communication to men gathered into this sentence. We're not frustrated by this sentence at all. It's like a diamond with so many facets, and the closer you look at it, the more majestic it is. It's, if, if this is your thing, it's the essential oil of all the essential oils of Scripture, just reduced right down to that. Salvation of God which fills the Bible and overflows onto the shelves of the shelves of the shelves of libraries all over the place is right here, without any harm to its power, set into one saying, without any frustration at all. The trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And just part of the facet of that beautiful diamond, Jesus came into the world Inductive Bible study will tell you in seminary that you're supposed to ask these questions. So if he came into the world, where did he come from? See, Well, what is it? Jesus came into the world. That's an unmistakable reference to the preexistence of Christ. He came into the world, leaving the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. And that's exactly what Jesus said about himself in John 16, 28. I came forth, he said, from the Father, and have come into the world, and I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. And yet it's condensed so beautifully Christ Jesus came into the world. It's exactly what Jesus prayed during his high priestly prayer in John 17, 5. Now, Father, he says, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the foundation of the world in eternity past, Jesus had glory with the Father bound to a body, forever in a body, to come down and bridge the gap between God and men. Restore that glory. 
Glorify me together with yourself. And the purpose for which he came into the world is stated distinctly in the next sentence. And it, again, flashes just another facet of this diamond. It says, to what? To save sinners. And we looked at this already, of course, as we said that's a demonstration of God's disposition of benevolence towards us. And there's great comfort in that, isn't it? And there is course a disease and saving is healing and there is a danger for saving is making secure and so again you get to answer these questions that are included and and the sinners here are mentioned in a very broad and very inclusive term in other words it's a universal condition that connects every person to judgment and death who's ever lived all lost irrespective of race or time. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Romans 5, 8, though. How did he demonstrate his love? Paul says this to a letter to the Romans. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still his enemy, Scripture says, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we should be saved from the wrath of God through him. He has bridged the gap. He came into the world to save sinners. And he saved us because we needed saving. We're saved from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let's look at the last part of verse 15, if you would. And we looked at this already under number five, which is the understanding and perspective that the power of the gospel rightly taught produces. Verse 15 says this. Look there. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, here it is, among whom I am foremost of all. But that statement in the middle of the wonder of this diamond on display also shows more of the power of the gospel and its purpose at work through faithful teaching, and it is that there is hope for the worst. There's hope for the worst. And we saw that we can't argue that Paul's using hyperbole. He's not trying to set something up as an example by overstating some case. He referred to himself always as this. It wasn't some special thing he was trying to draw attention to himself. And so we have to take his statement at face value. So he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to Timothy that's going to be read in the, in, the, in the church of Ephesus and then to the church broadly all the way down to today. So mark these. If you understand that very clearly, number one, no one can say he's too sinful to be saved since Christ saved Paul. So that has to mean that. Number two, no believer should regard any sinner as a hopeless case. Both of those have to be true if what Paul says is true, and it is. No one can say he's too sinful to be saved since Christ has saved Paul, and no believer should regard any other sinner as a hopeless case. And those are facets of this gorgeous diamond that's just sitting right here. So simple, right? And Jesus can save both. And the example of his saving power is Paul. That's the whole point of the statement. Now, I want you to think about something just for a few minutes because it will help us make this transition to this next verse. Few of us can unequivocally say why Jesus saved us. I'd like you to think about that. Why did he save you? Do you know? I mean, it would seem at least as I speak about myself, I have no idea why he would even want to. I know my own heart. I know how many times I failed him. I, I know where I was, but he redeemed me. I don't know why. 
other than for his good pleasure and eternal glory. In fact, that's exactly what Paul told the church earlier in his ministry in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Do you remember this? This is a marvelous verse. I think you're really going to like this. God, being rich in mercy, there's that word again, right? When you come in repentant faith and say you were an unbeliever, God reveals his mercy and it puts it on display. And because of his great love, and that's the benevolence of God as he looks at men, which he loved us, and I love how Paul uses these words that just gather everybody together, us and we, all the way through. So listen for those. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's your actual position. Did you know that? I mean, we slug through the world, and we have the sin in our own flesh, and we, we, we struggle all the time. But your real position, the, un, the unassailable position that you're never going to lose when you come to salvation, is the fact that you are, have this high view. That's your reality as God looks at you, see? seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, mark this, why were you born again? In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? That for any, it could be any other reason, but this one is the most important. What is it? It's so that you'll put on display his love and his mercy and his grace for all eternity when you are looked at in that heavenly place seated with the Lord everybody's going to know this is all God's doing and none of your doing and all the focus is going to be on and all the glory is going to be on the Lord from that time on and for no other reason you were saved to make God look good you understand nobody deserves salvation and yet if you receive it you receive it primarily for all eternity to make God look just as glorious as he is and that's a really comforting thought isn't it And so Paul knows that, obviously. He writes it to the church in Ephesus long before he writes this letter to Timothy. It's going to be read in Ephesus. But there's another reason why Paul was born again, and he's going to reveal it here, and I just love this. Paul expounds on God showing forth the surpassing riches of his unmerited favor for all eternity. God saved Paul for an additional reason. What was it? Look at verse 16. This is so cool. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, mark it, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So what's the additional reason? Apart from just bringing God glory forever and ever because his love and mercy and grace have been put on display, Paul's conversion was planned, marked as a pattern for future believers. In other words, if God could and would demonstrate his patience for a man who put Christian believers in prison and cast his vote for their death, if God could give mercy and grace to a man who provided a prototype for the Inquisition, God demonstrated all that to a religious thug, an early version of Thomas de Torquemada, then that's the example of exactly how patient God is. And that's patient, isn't it? So there's hope for everyone, isn't there? And again, the Holy Spirit carries Paul along to call every sinner across all the centuries, and he says, don't despair, he saved me, he can save you. So other than putting God's mercy and grace and love on display, 
Paul was saved, he says, as an example to show how great God's patience and his mercy really is. And so that gives hope to everyone. And when we hear that, I think, if you're like me, and we think of our own situation, what do those two last verses make us want to do? Praise God, right? You're probably already doing that in your heart right now. And that's exactly what Paul does. In verse 17, he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. That's all he can do. When the Holy Spirit carries him along to write this, and he looks at all this in its right perspective, then he just breaks out in praise, doesn't he? And beloved, it may be important to, to point out that like many of our praise songs today, the things Paul has emphasized up to this point, prior to these two verses, you know, God's, God's uh, giving strength and giving love and grace and all those kinds of things. You know, this is, these are the works of God in really personal, imminent terms of God's mercy and grace and patience to Him and to us. And we sang songs like that today, didn't we? We sing hymns and we sing praise songs that were personal to us. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with thanking God for saving you. There's nothing wrong with Him giving you uh, salvation and you, and you ran out of the grave you were in. I mean, that, that, there's nothing wrong at all with talking about things that God has done for us. And we sang about that. But this praise song here speaks of God in awesome, transcendent terms, God's personal attributes that are worthy of praise that market he has unto himself. Not about what he's done for you, just his own attributes, see. And the definitions of which we can only scratch the surface. We don't understand these attributes. It's like Job. He says, we've heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now we see you, but only like the fringe of a garment. We're barely even touching these things and what they mean. And we're going to look at this, and, and we're, we're out of time, so I'm going to just um, close with these things. And I'd like you just to listen to them, and I think it'll give you an opportunity just to praise the Lord. We see really four awesome descriptions of our great God that he has unto himself. Paul calls him the King Eternal. God is the King of all ages who sovereignly governs every age before creation, after creation, to the final age, and on into eternity forever. We live in a, a linear life captured by time. We have no idea what that means, other than, wow. Paul calls him immortal. In other words... God is not subject to decay or destruction or time and therefore is in the most absolute sense that we can imagine imperishable, incorruptible, and everlasting. Paul calls him invisible. In other words, the physical eye cannot see him. He lives in unapproachable light, the Shekinah of God. We don't comprehend that. He is incorporeal. He doesn't have a body. 
and whom no one has seen or can see, 1 Timothy 6.16. And all that human beings have ever seen of him, other than the incarnate Christ who reveals him fully, are glimpses of his glory. And then Paul calls him the only God, monotheo. In other words, he alone is what he is. Does that make sense? No. Of himself, God has declared, I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 18. Is that helpful? Not really. In the encounter of the burning bush in Exodus 3, 14, Moses asks what he's to say to the Israelites when they ask about what God, Elohim, have sent him to them. And Yahweh replies, I am who I am saying this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Did that clarify it for you? No. And yet, it does in some respects, doesn't it? It gives us this high sense in which we are so inadequate to capture any of that. And so we, we praise Him for what we can praise Him for, don't we? We praise Him for all that He's done and the work He's currently doing and the salvation He gave to us and the deliverance and the provision and, and, and over and over again and the blessings of our life. And even, the, and even Paul says, thank the Lord for difficult times and hardships because they produce patience and perseverance and that's going to have its perfect work. So we can thank Him for all those kinds of things because we understand them. They, they're captured in our time and space. But when we get to this, we're just like, oh my. And that's precisely the type of awe that Paul, I think, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, wants us to think. It's what he thinks too. And he says these words, and we can certainly say them, um, but we don't understand them in their fullness by any stretch. And that shouldn't surprise us, because with our finite mind, are we going to be able to capture all that God is? Uh, never. Someday we'll have a perfect body and a mind that can begin to understand greater depths and heights, but we still will be searching this out forever. The joy, one of the joys of heaven is discovering more about the Lord. Because there's always more to discover. And then as he ends that recounting of some of God's distinctions that he has only to himself, Paul adds just obviously, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that makes sense, doesn't it? And that's something we can grab a hold of. We might not understand all these distinctions he has unto himself, but we can certainly understand that, can't we? He deserves honor and glory forever and ever. And the Bible is a book that reveals how to bring honor and glory to the Lord. And we just read a bunch of them. And so then that brings us back to the reality of our own life and our frailty and, our, and living in clay. And God just says through Paul, these are, these are my attributes, some of them. There are many more, and they're all bound up with, the scripture says, with the belt of his faithfulness. Be honor and glory forever and ever. What a joy to end that that way. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer as we're at a time. I'd like you to close your eyes and I just want to read something to you very quickly. A hymn by Ari Hudson and William Clark, written in 1873, called All Praise to Him Who Reigns. And I think you know this as you listen to the words. Just give God the glory for all of this. He writes, All praise to Him who reigns above in majesty supreme, who gave His Son for men to die, that He might man redeem. His name above all names shall stand, exalted more and more. At God the Father's own right hand, where angels' hosts adore. Redeemer, Savior, friend of man, ruined by the fall, 
Thou hast devised salvation's plan, for Thou hast died for all. His name shall be the Counselor, the mighty Prince of Peace, of all earth's kingdoms, conqueror, whose reign shall never cease. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And with that, Father, we come before you in the humility that we should have, humbled again in our own pride and, and uh, uh, petty self-evaluation not based on reality. We come before you as a holy God. All that we have is a result of your grace and mercy. And that brings us to the right starting point again, where we can really be used by you because we want your glory and honor both now and forever. And so, Father, I pray that you'll help us to be conformed to your image, revealed in your Son by the reading and putting to work the Word of God in our lives. Through a very simple format where you desire to transform us and sanctify us by your Word. And so, Lord, I pray that that'll be the case. And thank you for the reminder of your, of your glory and your power that you're eternal and immortal and invisible and that you're the only God. And with those things, Father, we close today desiring very much to just do the simple things you've asked us to do. Someday those are the only things that are going to matter, to go out and love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. And then to go and give the gospel to every person that you brought into our sphere baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that you have commanded us, and you're with us always. So Father, as we think about those things, as we think about our purpose in life, I pray that we'll be about those things more and more as we see the day approaching, and we pray that all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.